Hey, welcome everybody to the Financial Independence Podcast, the podcast that gets inside the brains of some of the best and brightest in the personal finance space to find out how they achieved financial independence. Uh, today's guest I am super excited about, it is Michael Kitsis from Kitsis.com. And if you're not familiar with his work, he is one of the internet's most respected retirement researchers and financial planners. And uh, if you read my safe withdrawal rate post, his research was the core driver for that post. Um, I referenced many of his articles and white papers, and uh, he's just created some great stuff, and he's an uh, incredible guy. I'll, I'll list some of the, his qualifications. He's got a Master of Science in Financial Services. He's got a Master's in Taxation. He's a certified financial planner, a chartered life underwriter, a chartered financial consultant, and he speaks probably at, I think, like 50 to 70 events every year talking about all this stuff and he's got over 17 years experience in the business so loads of knowledge he puts out some great content and i'm excited to dive in deeper and really talk to him about unique challenges that early retirees in particular face and to dive into some of the early retirement research that he's done and the research into safe withdrawal rates so um, before I get him on the program. I wanted to run a quick experiment. Um, this story just proves how bad I am at like internet business stuff. So as I mentioned in my first year of freedom post that I released earlier in the month, the credit card search tool I created has been bringing in some unexpected income. So rather than just keep that income and be taxed on it, I've been trying to think of ways to reinvest it. So I was listening to a podcast at the gym and I was like, oh, maybe that would be a good way to reinvest the money. I could pay for advertising on somebody else's podcast and then tell more people about the credit card search tool. And that may you know, be a good investment. And that would be a way to spend some of these profits productively. So it wasn't until later that I thought to myself, hey, you idiot, you have your own podcast and you haven't even tested it out there. So why would you pay money to put an ad on somebody else's podcast when you don't even know if podcast advertising works? So Really stupid not to think of that, but I'm going to test it out here. So this episode is brought to you by the Mad Fientist Travel Credit Card Tool. So if you go to madfientist.com forward slash cards, you'll be shown a list of all the best sign-up bonuses currently on the market today. The real power of the app, though, is in the filter. So if you know you want to earn BA miles, for instance, you can just select BA and it'll automatically display all the best sign-up bonuses that'll earn you BA miles, which is really useful in today's complicated travel environment because there are all these different kinds of flexible points that transfer to various airlines and hotels. So it's really complicated to figure out which cards actually would earn you the most points for a particular program. The filter also lets you filter out cards with annual fees or first-year fees, so you can find the exact card that's going to be the best for your travel needs. So again, head over to madfientist.com forward slash cards, and you can check it out there and let me know what you think. And I'll be able to see if podcast advertising actually does work, and then I could decide whether I want to actually invest in podcast advertising elsewhere. So uh, yeah, thanks for letting me run this experiment. And uh, without any further delay, welcome, Michael Kitsis. Thank you so much for being here. I appreciate it. Thank you. Good to be here in the the Mad Scientist Laboratory. <laughs> yeah, I'm excited to have you here, and really thankful we were able to do this. Especially considering how busy you are, you are you're one of the busiest guys I know. So maybe just give people out there an idea of what Michael Kitz's life is like. <laughs> oh man, uh, yeah. So I so I wear a couple of different hats. I am a uh, partner in the Director of Wealth Management for Pinnacle Advisory Group, or uh, an independent wealth management firm in the. Uh, Baltimore, Washington area, uh, overseeing about $1.8 billion for more than 1,000 clients that we work with. Uh, I'm also the co-founder of a group called the XY Planning Network, uh, which is a community of about 450 financial advisors specifically focused on working with uh, younger folks with Gen X and Gen Y uh, people, thus the XY in the name. And and our focus there is doing financial planning for people for just an ongoing monthly subscription fee. So you know, so many advisors in our world uh, require big asset accounts or sell products, and our focus is just straight independent fee for service advice, pay on an ongoing subscription to work with an advisor in an ongoing relationship. And we've got a couple hundred advisors now that have that have joined that. Uh, and then I, I publish a blog myself called the Nerd's Eye View. So, of course, I have a, an affinity for, uh, you know, laboratories and, and all things science and research. 
and uh, uh, I've been running that for uh, gosh, almost almost ten years now with. Uh, kind of a, a range of topics we cover there. About half of it is actually for the advisory industry. So we talk about practice management trends and, and business strategy for advisors. But the other half, you know, my uh, much of my work in my career has been around uh, retirement research and kind of the intersections of retirements and investment theory, as well as retirements and tax strategies. And so I publish a lot of research, uh, both in in uh, some of the the journal publications for financial advisors, as well as a lot of research that we just published directly on on my own site, of you know all the all the stuff that we're studying and analyzing about how to how to do retirement and make it work to get, work better. Oh, and that's the fantastic stuff that I've that I stumbled across. I'm not sure when or how, but um, yeah, I've been a reader of your blog for many years, and it's just fantastic stuff. If anyone out there had read my safe withdrawal rate posts, they'll know that I linked to probably about five yeah. different uh, posts that you had written on kitsis.com that were just like incredible. And I that post could have been just like a book report of all of those posts because and it pretty much was, but um, uh, well, much, much appreciated. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I, you know, it's the cool thing just about blogging and publishing research, you know, from, from, uh, I mean, you live, you live it as well. Like as a blogger, there's nothing more exciting than like, Oh my God, someone linked back to me and referenced something <laughs> that I wrote. Like, it's so exciting. So I'm, I'm just, I'm, I'm thrilled to see that it's, that it's, uh, getting out there and, and getting read and, and hopefully having some, uh, helpful, positive impact for, yeah. for people that are trying to plan their, their retirement path. Absolutely. Yeah. It was, it was incredibly helpful for me. Um, and yeah, everyone that's read that post, uh, hopefully has got a lot out of it as well. So I'd actually like to talk to you about, uh, that research you did into safe withdrawal rates, if you don't mind. Um, sure. That, that seems to be one of your biggest, you know, areas of research. So how, how did you start looking into that and what, what caused you to, to really dive deep into that research? Yeah, the you know the the safe withdrawal rate research has been kind of an interesting path for me. I I really came into into spending a lot of time studying it in the the early mid to two thousand. So as you know, the uh, kind of the original version of a study that put that on the radar screen for the advisor community was uh, an article by Bill Bengen in the uh, October nineteen ninety four issue of the Journal of Financial Planning, uh, and and the research just kind of lingered out there. Uh, in the advisory community, it frankly didn't didn't get not only did it not get a lot of adoption in the in the early years. Uh, Bengen at the time was actually pretty harshly criticized by the advisor community, who said uh, that four percent number that's just ridiculously crazy low. Right. Uh, like, why would you spend that little? Because you know, in 1994, I'm like I know how to solve retirement. You just Pull out a spreadsheet. You put in that the long-term return of stocks is ten to twelve percent. You buy a diversified portfolio. You calculate how to amortize your portfolio over a multi-decade time period, and it'll tell you that you can spend like six and a half or seven percent because that's what you get when you plug in twelve percent returns on stocks, which back then would have been like a conservative <laughs> sure. estimate by by some people's views. So, uh, you know, he got he got lambasted for um, for being too low and. In the in the mid two thousands, I was uh, working at Pinnacle Advisory Group. I was the director of financial planning at the time, and and my job was to build out and develop our financial planning process. And we had a strong focus on working with retirees, still do. And so uh, it was my job to to kind of take in the research and figure out how we're going to analyze and evaluate retirement situations. And so. That for me was the at least the starting point of starting to gobble up some of the safe withdrawal rate research, as well as looking at uh, spending a lot of time looking at Monte Carlo analysis tools and just a lot of the different modeling techniques that had evolved uh, in the preceding ten or fifteen years around retirement. Because I, you know, up until the uh, basically like the the nineteen eighties, uh, you know, retirement was basically just buy bonds and invest and spend the interest or buy buy stocks and spend the dividends because we didn't i mean unless you wanted to literally like pull out an abacus it was kind of hard to do all the number crunching to figure out what sort of retirement would work it wasn't until the 80s late 80s showed up and we started getting personal computers that we could actually begin modeling this stuff no coincidence that bang and study came out a couple of years later and so the the 1990s and the early 2000s was kind of this explosion of all these different tools and techniques to analyze retirement, and I would and I was trying to take them all in to figure out how how we were going to 
do it and build a build an approach for our clients. And at the same time, I was also deeply involved with our investment team and our our investment team at at uh, Pinnacle. You know, we're we're not fans of trying to time markets and buy individual stocks. We we just find markets are way too efficient uh, to really be able to add a lot of value there. But uh, you know, it's it still gets pretty clear at a basic level that. You know, bonds that yield two are probably going to produce less of a return than bonds that yield eight. And stocks with an earnings yield of two are probably going to produce less than stocks with an earnings yield of eight. And earnings yields is really just P.E. ratios and valuation flipped upside down. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, we kind of came at investing with this view and philosophy that valuation matters just you know, when you want to set everything from a reasonable allocation for a retirement portfolio to just figuring out what you can spend, knowing that stuff has really lousy yields matters and knowing that stuff has really good yields matters. And 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 that needs to be weighed in the consideration. And so I was I was kind of at this point of spending a whole lot of time looking at safe withdrawal rate research as well as Monte Carlo tools and all these different ways to model retirement while I was also immersed in an investment team that had a very long-term valuation-driven investment process. And it kind of led me to bringing the two together to say, well, what happens if you actually start looking at all of this retirement withdrawal research uh, through through the lens of market valuation? Mm. And and that was what led to the the study I'd, I'd put forth in 2008 that basically said, what happens if we take something like long-term valuation measure, so uh, Schiller PE ratios, the, the Cape 10 ratio, yep. and and then screen what's actually happened with withdrawal rates using Schiller Cape, which you know now Cape has become very popular as a as a mechanism to look at. Uh, you know the fact that Schiller got a Nobel Prize didn't really hurt so much. <laughs> right. uh, but like back then, no, I mean no one was talking about it. No one knew what it was. When I first thing I had to do when I talked about the research was just explain what a cyclically adjusted PE ratio was and all the all the work that Schiller had done in in creating that measure. But what I found was that uh, you when you look historically at all the time periods where you had to use this safe withdrawal rate number where you can only take out like four to four and a half percent of your initial account balance adjusting subsequently for inflation, that that initial withdrawal rate was really only set by like three or four different starting points for retirement in history, all of which were time periods where you retired when valuations were really, really high. And it it turned out all of the historical scenarios that necessitated these really low withdrawal rates were specifically environments that were high valuation. And that if you got into merely average valuations, it really wasn't a 4% rule. It was a 5% rule. And if you got into cheaper valuations, it was more like a 55 to 6% rule. And, and so we published this, this study that said, if you, if you want to figure out how to set an appropriate initial withdrawal rate uh, and what's sustainable out of your portfolio, you, you really got to look at what's going on with overall valuation levels in the market at the time because four percent, frankly, and we wrote at the time was was a good idea at the time. I published this in the early two early two thousand eight uh, and said valuations are really high. You really should be spending conservatively because there's a risk of a material market decline. Not actually knowing that was going to play out within six months of when I published <laughs> the study, and, and so it, it it kind of worked in that context. But then likewise, after we went through a market decline and we had people coming in in 2009 and 2010 and saying, well, what can I spend? Well, the answer was, it's really not a 4% rule for you anymore. It's a 5% rule. Now, it's it's 5% of a slightly smaller account balance, which is kind of a bummer from the bear market. But uh, but but the withdrawal rate is different after you see that kind of market volatility and and stocks get cheaper. Right. And and that, and that that's a really important thing to consider when you're trying to set policy around how much of this can I spend or, or conversely, like, do I have enough in my retirement assets to make this retirement goal work? Like, am I actually financially independent? Yeah, that's it. I'm looking at the graph that you created with the, you know, um, the safe withdrawal rates versus the Schiller inverse yeah. of the PE 10. And it's just amazing amounts of correlation there. Um, and I, I will link to that in the show notes. I think it's in your understanding sequence of return risk post. Um, yes. But it's yeah, it's just incredible that you could predict these 
safe withdrawal rates based on you know something that you can look at today and and it, it, it's that predictive it's a, that must have been an incredible realization <laughs> yeah it was it was pretty striking when we uh when i really finished that first uh study that first take on it and just started this modeling of uh, you know, PE ratios and, and subsequent safe withdrawal rates. And, you know, we'll, we'll make sure you get a link to the, uh, the original report that we actually did, which was all the way back in, in May, 2008. Uh, you know, we call it the Kitsis report. That's the, it was kind of the, uh, the research white papers that I was publishing at the time and, and still do. And, uh, and, and we had this chart in there that, uh, and I still remember working on it where like, all right, well, Let's you know plug in PEU ten ratios at the beginning of retirement, and then uh and then the safe withdrawal rate for retirement, and see how all well these things line up, and and like it was just a perfect mirror image to each other that you know the the predictive value was phenomenally high, uh, uh you know I, th- I think I think it was like a a 0.74 correlation, which you know I I was actually my background I was a, a psychology major, and uh. You know, in psych research, like the brain and human psychology is so complex that if you're doing a psych study and you get results that have like a correlation of 0.1, you get excited. If you get a correlation of 0.2, it's basically guaranteed to publish as long as you don't screw up the article or you didn't have broken methods. So to find this this correlation of 0.74 between valuation levels and 30-year safe withdrawal rates that no one had ever written about before, like – I got pretty excited at the time when it oh, went on. Amazing. Yeah, and I'm I'm actually looking and it's point point seven nine actually too. So it's even better than than uh point seven yeah. four, it looks like, which yeah, it just if you look when you look at the graph, it just it, it's such a clear clear yeah. uh, clear trend. So um for people who may be in their car right now and aren't able to Google Schiller Cape ten, um can you just give a little description about it and yeah. talk about why it is so predictive in this case? Yeah, so so the idea of uh, of of Schiller Cape and this PE ten. So the basic idea of a PE ratio is, as the name implies, like P and E. The P is the price, and the E is the earnings of the company. And and I find for most people, it's it's easiest to actually think about it as a as kind of the flip side, which is an E an EP ratio, earnings earnings uh, uh, on top. So. When you think of any any investment like a bond, you know, uh, a bond pays five percent, uh, or well, today's bond bond pays three. Uh, so if a bond pays three, that simply means for every dollar that you put in, you're going to get uh, three cents back as a yield. And stocks really mechanically function the same way. If I'm running a business and my businesses are worth say a hundred dollars, uh, for every hundred dollars of business value, if my EP ratio is three. That means for every hundred dollars of business value I have, I make earnings of three percent. Now, with businesses, it's a little bit more complex because I actually get a choice as a business owner. I can take that three percent and keep it and reinvest in my company. I can take that three percent and pay it out to the shareholders as a dividend. Uh, most companies do a blend of each; they pay some out to dividends and they and they keep the rest. But if you're if you hope that they reinvest the money productively into something that helps to grow the company. Whether they reinvest it themselves or they give it to you, it's it's kind of there for future growth. And so if we look at just the earnings of a company relative to the price, we can get an understanding of its yield or, or what kinds of uh, uh, earning power it's generating. And, and it really functions pretty similar to bonds. Uh, you know, things that have high earnings yields are, are producing a lot of dollars. Things that have low earnings yields produce very few dollars for each, each uh, $100 of value in the company. So – in the stock world, we tend to flip that yield over. And instead of talking about it as, as earnings over profits, we talk about it as profits over uh, – or, or price over the earnings. Uh, and so P over E. So if you think of something that has a, a, a 3% ratio, that means it's, it's generating $3 uh, of earnings for every $100 of profits. And I flip that over, I get 100 over 3, which means my P ratio is 33 or 33.33333 repeating. And so we can get we can look at this to start understanding what kinds of prospective earnings power does this company have? High PE ratios mean low low earnings yields. Low PE ratios mean high earnings yields. So so in this case, low PEs are good. Uh, high PEs are bad. Mm-hmm. And 
now, the problem with this in the short term is that companies are volatile. Uh, some have good years, some have bad years. Uh, you know, 2008, the whole S&P and the aggregate lost money because the financials lost as much money as the rest of the economy put together or the rest of the S&P stocks put together. Uh, and so because earnings get really, really volatile, it gets challenging to use earnings from year to year as a measurement of valuation. And, and 2008 is actually a really good example. 2008 was so horrible that companies hardly made any money. Which means if you calculated a P/E ratio, the price over the earnings, and the earnings went to went to zero uh, because the, the the market was so bad, you know the the market had this implied P/E ratio of of a thousand or basically of infinity if you try to literally divide divide by zero, even though they actually just crashed and went down forty something percent, and in in theory should be a lot cheaper after they just went on sale by forty percent. Sure. Yet if you calculate a traditional PE ratio, the E is so volatile in a recession that it makes them look worse after the crash than it does before. So to to fix this, uh, the kind of the great revelation of Schiller was that instead of just taking the you know the current earnings of the company and dividing into the stock's price. You take uh, a 10-year average of the last 10 years' worth of earnings. So by the time you take a 10-year average of company earnings, you start to smooth this out a little bit. Uh, you know, yeah, there's some bad years in there, but there's also some good years. They they kind of offset each other, and and you get to a balancing point that starts to work. Uh, and that that was basically what Schiller found was if we take a 10-year average of earnings, we get a pretty uh, a pretty stable predictor of uh, earnings yields, valuation, and and a pretty strong relationship to subsequent returns, particularly long-term returns. The uh, the that Schiller PE ten ratio actually doesn't do a very good job at all of telling you where the market's going to be in the next three or six or twelve months, uh, but it's amazingly good at telling you what's going to be going on in the markets over the next ten years and whether the next ten years are going to be good or bad which is really important when you're talking about retirement distributions because as we know it the the biggest driver of the long-term outcomes is the sequence risk basically what happens in the first decade so if you know evaluation and a and a measure like Schiller PE10 tells you what's going on with valuation over the next uh, uh 10 year or sorry tells you what returns are likely to be over the next 10 years and whether they're going to be above average or below average that becomes incredibly informative about whether you can take a higher or a lower withdrawal rate than than four percent, and and that was basically what we found in the research. That's amazing. So so right now we're sitting at Cape of thirty, which you know this is we're getting into really high territory. Um, I think the only other time it's been higher is you know leading up to uh, yeah, the, the, the big crash in the early two thousands. Yep. So we're sitting at you know high Cape, but there's a floor to the safe withdrawal rate that you found. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, you know, as 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 bad as it's as it can get when you get these bad sequences, what we still ultimately found is it still doesn't seem to get any worse than about four percent. Uh, that you know, even when we look at uh, horrible time periods, like uh, you know, if you retired in 1929 on the eve of the Great Depression, the market went down about 85 percent in the first three years. Uh, fortunately, if you had a diversified portfolio with some bonds in there, you 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 mitigated that a little bit. But uh, I mean that that's horrific. I mean that you know truly horrific. It makes uh, the financial crisis look mild by comparison. But market really did go down about eighty five percent from top to bottom uh, from nineteen twenty nine to nineteen thirty two. Yet the yet the four percent rule uh, worked through that time period. You know, the the combination of diversification and keeping your spending modest and frankly the fact that the Great Depression had a lot of deflation, which is really bad economically, but is technically good if you're a retiree. It means uh, uh bad news market went down, good news you don't need as much from your portfolio anyways because everything got cheaper because that's what happened with deflation. <laughs> the the stuff gets cheaper. Uh and so this this 4% initial withdrawal rate worked. And likewise, when we look at other time periods, like retiring in the mid 1960s, so the uh, you know, interesting historical uh, uh, footnote: 1966 was the first year that the Dow hit a thousand. And unfortunately, actually, it wasn't a very good year in the markets. The markets had a pullback, 
Uh, it took him a couple of years to recover. And by early 1973, the Dow still was not any materially higher than 1,000. Then the 73-74 bear market crash happened. And the market declined about 45% from top to bottom. And it took another eight years for the market to recover. So in 1981, the Dow was still at 1,000, trying to break through to a new high. So if you imagine being in retirement and for the first 15 years, the market gives you no capital appreciation whatsoever, you begin to get a sense of what it was like to be a 1966 retiree. Now, on top of that, it gets even worse because inflation went from about 2 to 12, which also caused the worst bond bear market of the century at the same time that stocks generated no appreciation for 15 years. Jeez. And despite that, or, or even through all of that, what we find is this 4% initial withdrawal rate adjusting for inflation uh, works. Now, the, the good news for both these time periods, retiring on the eve of the Great Depression and in 1966, is the second half of your retirement was great. In fact, the 30-year returns were not that bad. Uh, they were only down a little bit. But the first half of retirement was so horrific in these scenarios that you needed to spend a more conservative number so that you had enough money left for when the good returns finally showed up because finally stocks were super cheap. And when you got to the bottom in 1981, the bad news is you made no appreciation on stocks for 15 years. The good news was stocks were giving cash dividend yields of like 7 to 9% by the end of that. So – you weren't making any appreciation, but the economy kept growing. And if your stock isn't going up while your economy is growing, eventually there's just more and more earnings powering through and you're getting bigger dividends and eventually you start to uh, to make it up. But the, the, this what we find is this this 4% number just seems to, to work. And I don't think there's anything really like magical or sacred about it. It's really just a recognition that if you actually look historically, we're pretty consistent that about once every 20 or 30 years, we do something really, really bad and dumb to our economy. Um, I mean, we kind of do it like clockwork. We, we, we did it in, uh, in, the, in the 1970s. 1966 was kind of a slow start, but the bad stuff didn't really hit until the 1970s. Uh, we did it during the Great Depression in the 30s. If you actually go 30 years back before that, we did it in the first decade of the 1900s as well. A uh, giant, giant national financial crisis completely froze the economy, ultra low interest rates, massive real estate crisis, actually surprisingly similar to the, the one we had in 2008. Uh, and, and so we, we just seem to do these every 20 or 30 years. We did it in the first decade of the 1900s. We did it in the 1930s. We did it in the 1970s. And then we did it to ourselves again in the 2000s. And and what we find is is four percent just seems to be a number that's low enough that even if you start when valuations are high and risk is elevated or returns are likely low and then you add a whole bunch of bad stuff on top, the withdrawal rate is moderate enough that you can still make it to the good returns. Right. You can you will still have something left, some moderate amount left, so that when the good returns finally show up. You can work through to the end. And, and when we actually look even in the historical – in the uh, international data, you see something pretty similar. Um, safe withdrawal rates in even places like Canada and Australia uh, were, were right in this 35 to 4.5% range as well. Uh, it, it, it stays pretty stable around the globe with, with the kind of the small historical asterisk that um, uh, if you're a retiree in a country that loses global war – it doesn't go well for you. So if you, if you run like the safe withdrawal rate of a 1939 retiree in Japan, your safe withdrawal rate is like 0.5 because, you know, actually losing global war and getting hit with nuclear bombs like really does bad things to your economy. Yeah. Uh, safe withdrawal rate in Germany was about 1% or 2%. In Italy, it was about 1.5%. Uh, you know, the, those kinds of like truly external global war sorts of events – uh, uh, you know, still, still change this number. Cause now you're not just talking about, Hey, we made some bad decisions for our economy and we've got to heal them. Now you're talking about like, we destroyed all of our factories and lost a third of our working populations to, uh, uh, death and war. And, uh, you know, unfortunately things on that order of magnitude can still break, uh, uh, even that 4% rule, sure. but, but literally it's about what it takes short of anything from that. We find this number 
uh, in about three and a half to four and a half percent seems to work pretty much around the globe. And, and most of those studies are actually just based on very simple two asset class portfolios, you know, large cap stocks and, and government bonds. And of course, today we, we tend to own more diversified portfolios, which actually just brings even a little bit more stability to those uh, uh, to those results. And it's worth mentioning, we've been focusing on like the worst case scenarios here. I'm just going to quote a couple of your, uh, your, some of your things that you've said in some of your other posts, like um, the safe withdrawal rate actually has a 96% probability of leaving more than all of your original starting principle. Um, so yes, even it survives all these terrible times, but in most cases it's doing even better than surviving. Like you're, you're going to have a lot more money than you even started with. So like over two thirds of the time, the retiree would finish with more than double their starting principal. So 66% of yep. the time and you're, you've doubled, uh, doubled your money and you've lived off of it for 30 years. So, yep. um, oh, my audience is all, uh, early retirees or people that are hoping to retire early. So uh, a lot of questions that I get are, well, yeah, all these studies are great, but they focus on a 30 year time horizon yep. and I'm only 30 and I'm hopefully going to live another 60 years. Um, so what does that do to my safe withdrawal rate? And, You've actually done research on that, so can you just share yep. what you found there? Yeah, yeah, we've uh, you know we published a couple of pieces over the years looking at at this safe withdrawal rate framework over over different time periods. And actually, the 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 first person to to publish on this was was Bengett himself. Uh, you know, he did the original study in 1994, and and no great surprise, even then people responded to him like, "Hey, neat study, but I'm a little younger and I'm not planning for 30 years." Or some people said, "Hey, I'm neat study, but I'm already 73 years old. I'm not really planning for 30 years right now. Like 20 would be awesome. Thanks." Uh, so he he published a follow up study, and 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 we've since uh, you know replicated the the research and the results as well. That basically when you, when you move the time period from 30 years out to out to 40 to 50 years, you end up going from a four percent rule to about a three and a half percent rule. So it's it's a haircut, but it's actually just a fairly small one. Mm-hmm. And and the reason in large part is, you know, markets on average go up way, way more than four percent, even balanced portfolios on average go up way more than four percent. If you just plug in, we mentioned earlier, if you just plug in long term market returns, uh, you find that the the safe withdrawal rate based on average returns should be about six and a half percent. And actually, if you just calculate all of the historical withdrawal rates that would have worked on average, uh, you find that's about six and a half percent. So in this world where on average six and a half works, but we have to take out four just to defend against the the uh, bad luck that we could be on the eve of the next great economic catastrophe and we might happen to be like that 1929 retiree or that 1966 retiree or uh, uh, one of those horrible scenarios, the few that crop up. We take six and a half all the way down to four, but we're still only doing it because once every 30 years, we manage to do something that's so horrible to our uh, economy that we need 10 to 15 years to recover. And then the good returns finally show up. And once the good returns show up, the bull market that eventually shows up is so good, it pretty easily carries you to the end. And whether whether that's 30 or 45 or 60 years, right. right. And that's the thing. Like once you make it through the first 10 to 15 years and have, call it, a decent chunk of money for the rest of the time thereafter, the the difference between having money for another 15 or 20 years or another 30 plus years, which on top of the first 15 is now 45 plus, it's not actually that big of a difference. Uh, And and actually because of that, I and a few others now have, have been starting to work on you know, figuring out some kind of rules-based systems to make this a little bit more dynamic because the effect that really ends up happening, particularly if you're looking at uh, things like 40 or 50 or 60-year retirement time horizons, is if the first 10 years go well or even just not horribly, you, you just get decent returns and, and things move up a little and you're only withdrawing something like 35 or 4%, your portfolio is going to climb 30, 50, 100% in the first 10 years. And at that point, you're going to sit down and say, you know, I, I probably don't need to still take this three and a half percent withdrawal rate because actually my portfolio is up so much. What started out as three and a half is now down to two and two is way more conservative than we need to be even in bad sequences. Sure. And so, uh, you know, you, you end out with this path where for the first 10 or 15 years, if things are good, frankly, you're going to realize 
certainly 10 years in probably earlier that it's okay to start ratcheting your spending a little bit higher because you're already so far ahead of even that initial three and a half percent rate that you might have started with. Mm -hmm. But we start down at that lower number just in case it turns out we really are on the eve of the next horrible bear market or the next great depression and that things could be lousy for 10 or 15 years. And if that's the case, you'll be thankful that you were at a low number. You'll spend very conservatively for the next 10 or 15 years. And then eventually, and by now that would be like the 2030s, eventually when good market returns show up in the 2030s, uh, you'll get to start lifting your spending up then at that point once the good returns finally set in and show up again. And 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 that really then becomes the dynamic. Like you you won't realistically stick with this one initial withdrawal rate and lifestyle for the next 50 or 60 years because 30 years in, in fact, frankly, probably 10 years in, you will either already be so far ahead that the number will seem trivial and it'll be clear that you need to re-anchor mm -hmm. or you'll have gone through some difficult time period. But once the good returns show up, if the good returns show up and they're not just good, but they're great, you're still going to end up getting ahead at some point because that's the nature of this threshold style approach of safe withdrawal rates when everything anchors around literally the one worst case scenario of horrible below average market returns that we've ever, ever seen at any point in history. Anything that's better than that means at some point you're going to end up getting a little ahead, a lot ahead or really far ahead and and be able to adjust your spending. And a lot of what we're working on right now is just trying to figure out how far ahead do you realistically need to be in order to start dialing up your spending, right? Because I don't necessarily want to move it really far up the minute I get a good year in the market. So if there's a market pullback, then I'm going to have to like sell that awesome new thing that I just bought. Mm -hmm. So ideally, we want to ratchet this a little bit more slowly, but we're trying to figure out now what are the good trigger points for when are you far enough ahead that it's okay to lift up your lifestyle a little bit because you're far enough ahead that it's safe. Right. Yeah. And I think a lot of people who are thinking about early retirement, they, they want to be super conservative. And a lot of people say like, you know, 3% or even less. Some people have said they're trying to, you know, wait until they could only withdraw less than 3%. And I think they miss the point that the fact that, you know, if they have a really bad initial five years or 10 years, like early retirement, so different than standard retirement. Like when you're, when you're planning for your standard retiree clients to retire, like, you know, they're probably not as marketable in the job market at that stage. Maybe, you know, they're, they're not able to work as long hours or do a variety of different things potentially at an older age. Whereas somebody in their thirties, you know, they could get a job at the bar down the street if it's, if things got really bad, if you know what I mean. So it's yeah. like, well, I, and, and, and truly like the, the fact that, um, the fact that when you retire young, so, you know, the, economically, the way I'd put it is, is when we work with older retirees who, who tap out when they're 60 or 70 something, um, there's a, not a lot of working options, not a lot of working options left for them. Either, either they, they literally don't have, uh, any, any physical capability to, to work anymore. Um, or, or they just don't have good skill sets to get paid well. And, and so they just, they don't really have many working options left. Um, when you're, when you're younger though, work is still an option and, and work has an economic value attached to it. And in, in fact, one of the ways that we like to look at it and, and talk about it with our, uh, our younger clients is to literally say like, you know, when you're in your twenties and thirties and frankly, even still in your, in your forties, uh, your single greatest asset is your ability to work and, and generate income. Uh, you call it human capital. Mm -hmm. So you've got human capital, which is your ability to work and generate some income, and you've got financial capital, which is basically human capital that you had in the past that you converted into money and you saved. And right. now you've got financial capital. So our goal is to get to the point where our financial capital covers all of our needs and we don't need the human capital anymore. That's what we call financial independence. I don't need to get paid to work anymore. But it's still your choice about whether or not to harvest your human capital uh, and turn it into additional dollars. And you can, you can continue to quote work in retirement. Uh, you know, that, that's actually why I'm a huge fan of the, the, even just the label financial independence and not retirement, because we see this routinely with clients and have for years and years now. Um, if you've got any sort of physical and mental capability to keep working in retirement, 
uh, most people we see continue to work in retirement for a period of time. Uh, or they take a little bit of time off and then they realize they're kind of bored and they go back and they end up working retirement. Now, work looks completely different for them. Uh, sometimes it's free work. It's volunteer. It's non-paid. It's nonprofit. Sometimes it's drastically lower paid uh, than anything they were doing before. But, hey, you don't need the money. So who cares? Uh, anything's better than nothing. It's fun spending money. Uh, and and more importantly, particularly in the context of people are doing uh, you know, extreme early retirement scenarios, the fact that you can turn the human capital back on means you ultimately always have another fallback if if things are going really badly for your financial capital, which is you just find a little bit of work to supplement it. And And the good news is you don't even necessarily have to find a ton of work and supplement it a lot because when I'm only trying to spend, you know, a, a few percent of my financial capital in the first place, even a moderate amount of work that just brings in a little bit of money dramatically reduces what your ongoing spending need if, is if you were living fairly frugally in the first place. Yeah, and and I find for a lot of uh, prospective retirees or, or, or early financial independence folks, I think they actually grossly underestimate uh, the the sheer impact of of like just doing a little part-time work for like $10,000 a year. I mean, bear in mind, if, if you were assuming that uh, this 3.5% withdrawal rate was your number, an extra $10,000 a year of side gig income in retirement is like having another three hundred grand in your portfolio. Right, exactly, if yeah. you were only going to assume a, a, a 2% rate, like that that $10,000 of side earnings, I mean, that's that's a couple hundred bucks a month is – is like having another half a million dollars sitting as part of your retirement portfolio. And so when you view it that way, you know, a little bit of side gig, side hustle, part-time, you know, fun work, but you get paid, whatever you want to call it, actually has a dramatic impact on making that early retirement even more easily sustainable, including for a lot of people, we point out like, Hey, I know you're trying to work another you know, seven more years to to hit your number for for extreme early retirement, but you realize if you just cut your work back to fifty percent, you have enough today. Right. Just just cut back fifty percent, and if you cut back your income fifty percent, you don't even have to keep doing your current job. In fact, you you know it, it's funny. I, I see a lot of people that are are really buried into a current job and feel like they're stuck and they have to do it. But when I say to them like, if all you needed to earn was Ten or twenty thousand dollars a year. Some people, it's a higher number, but a lot, like ten or twenty grand a year, is is more than enough to to supplement that that early retirement goal. Mm -hmm. If you could do anything on the planet you wanted that would pay you ten or twenty grand, could you come up with something that might be fun, <laughs> right? More that you might even enjoy a little bit more than your current job. Yeah, and and a whole lot of people say yes <laughs> once you put it that way. I'm like, yeah, I don't even need to be done. Like, if all I got to do is earn ten or twenty grand, like. Yeah, I can find some stuff to do that would be uh, a lot more fun and a lot more enjoyable that I might actually enjoy my day and I wouldn't even have to work as many hours and I could clear 10 or 20 grand. And that's a, that's a, that would be a much easier transition from work life to early retirement as well. If it, you know, yeah. the Just taking the leap is probably pretty scary for a lot of people. So yeah, just dialing yep. it back or switching careers into something that you actually enjoy is an excellent idea, definitely. And it and just it makes a huge impact on how much you need or not need to be able to make that that transition in the first place. Now, if you know, you truly want to say like, no, no, I'm so I'm I'm so financially independent that I can take a zero on that on that work income for the rest of my life. Then okay, you got to hit your whole FI number. But but even, but even then, you you're maybe in your 30s or 40s, and you're more adventurous maybe than somebody in their 70s. And yep. you could, if, you know, if crazy inflation hits the States, then you could just yep. go to Asia for a year and have an amazing experience. Yep. And so, yeah, you have a lot more flexibility as an early retiree on the earning side, but you also have a lot more flexibility on the yep. spending side. So if, if the really bad 10 years hits, there's so many things that you could do, uh, rather yep. than, you know, work an extra 10 years so that you can only withdraw 3%. Yep. So. It's, it's so true. And, and, and again, I'd note even just from the flip side, having, been through this with lots of clients over the years, the number of people who insisted on getting to their pure standalone financial independence number because they never, ever, ever, ever wanted to have to work again, 
And then within three years, we're working again. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Like that's something I've realized just within a year of leaving my job. It's like I, I get the most happiness and pleasure from like making progress on projects. And it's, yeah. it's great doing these projects with no like worry for whether it's going to have a monetary reward, but yeah. most of these but, things do. <laughs> and it, yeah. Except, yeah. Like, except they end up actually still having a, a monetary reward. Right. I mean, even in the, uh, you know, even the financial independence community, you know, you, you look at folks like, uh, like Mr. Money Mustache that, you know, tapped out for his financial independence. Cause he, cause he, you know, he saved up to hit his number, <laughs> except, then he was bored in retirement and made a blog and the blog turned out to be so <laughs> successful that now he's making, I, I think more money than he was when he was working Yeah, definitely. Uh, uh, off of the hobby that he was going to do when he didn't have to work and earn any more money. Uh, and, <laughs> yeah. and, and I think really just the challenge for so many people is, is we get so stuck in this way of thinking that I'm in a job now and I don't really enjoy my job. So the only path forward I can see is getting to a number where I can, you know, say goodbye to my boss and never have to work again because working is for some folks, unfortunately, like so unpleasant. The, it feels like the only relief is not working and, and getting to financial independence when in reality, like, you know, we need things to wake up to in the morning and we need to be able to have a sense of progress. And we, we, we want it, we crave to have something that gives us a feeling like we're having impact. And most of those things end up being activities that earn some money, (laughs) even if you didn't mean to, or even it's like, Hey, I'm bored. And I really like, I really want to get some social fulfillment. And we had a client like that. And like two years later, he's a really successful bartender. Right. He was a programmer. He was a really social programmer who wanted to be out of the computer world, I think, in part because he wanted more social interaction, didn't feel like he got it as a programmer. And he ended up being a bartender and he gets to chit chat with people and have fun and pretty much enjoys it because he only takes the shifts that he wants and he only works a couple of days a week and he's making money and it's not trivial money. And, you know, he never would have thought like, hey, have you ever thought about quitting your good computer engineering job and being a bartender? I mean, if if (laughs) we'd had that conversation at the time, he probably would have laughed it off. Yeah, that's exactly where he ended out because he just, you know, having 50 years in front of you is so much time. You're going to want to find things to do. And a lot of the things you're going to end out wanting to do are going to end out producing some dollars. And, and again, the irony for him and so many is if he just admitted that, you know, doing a little bartending work might've been on the table in the first place, he probably could have been out two years earlier. Yeah, no, definitely. And, and, it's funny you mentioned Mr. Money Mustache. Uh, just within the twenty last twenty four hours, somebody asked him and I a question on Twitter, and his response was: "The secret of very early retirement is that almost everyone makes money after retiring. Too much happy energy to avoid it." <laughs> and and, I, and yeah. I, I definitely agree. There's there's so many. Uh, yeah, you just have so much more energy and so much more passion for things, and you can devote yeah. all that passion and energy towards something. And yeah, and and when when that happens, it usually creates something good and people somehow pay money for it or somehow money gets generated from it. So yeah, no, that's great. Um, so I, I'd like to just like take a step back and have you put on your advisor hat and what, is there anything in particular that you focus on when someone comes to you with maybe like really early retirement dreams? Um, obviously, you know, the savings aspect and maybe talk a little bit about, you know, what you focus on is, is asset allocation different. I'm, I'm assuming, you know, for a longer time horizon, more stock heavy portfolio is probably better. Um, but yeah, just like talk to me as an advisor, what, yeah. what are some of the things that you consider when someone comes to you and says, Hey, I want to retire really early. So, so there's a few things, you know, one is just there, there's a little bit of blocking and tackling around, um, just the, the portfolio and the dollars and the savings, how is invested? What are you doing to actually produce cash flows from this? Or are you going to invest in a total return portfolio and simply spend some combination of interest dividends and capital gains? Uh, are you are you buying real estate to generate cash flows? Uh, is, is a bunch of the money tied up in pre-tax retirement accounts where we have both tax consequences, right? Like if mm-hmm. – uh, 
you know, the truth is if you got a big account, but it's an IRA, well, basically a quarter of that is earmarked for Uncle Sam. So your financial independence nest egg is maybe not quite as big as you thought it was when you consider that Uncle Sam's going to lay claim to a portion of that. Uh, and, and do we have a, a plan about how we're going to get the dollars you need to spend given practical rules like IRAs have early withdrawal penalties before age 59 and a half, which we can work around with what are called the substantially equal periodic payment rules, but that limits how much money we can get out. So, you know, oh, the first part of it is just kind of setting the cash flow plan mm-hmm. and and the and and how the investments are going to be allocated to make sure that we can generate the cash flow dollars that we need. Uh, the next thing, although in, in truth, it's really the first thing that I tend to talk about with with folks is just, you know, this whole like early retirement financial independence thing, like, what does that actually mean to you? And like, what's your vision of how this is going to go for the next couple of years? Right. Yeah. That's... Like just, just paint a picture for me and, and like, where are you going to be living? Staying where you are, you moving somewhere else. You're going to, you're going to travel, you're going to sell your house and go nomad. You're going to just hunker down where you are. Cause you love where you live. You just hate it that you have to leave it to go to work every day. Like what, Paint a picture for me of what this what this looks like, because that starts getting us into things like what is your cost of housing? What is your cost of living? What kind of cars do you going to have or how many cars do you need? What's your overall lifestyle expenses and spending Um, for a lot of folks that starts opening up the the follow up question that we were actually just talking about earlier, which is so there's 168 hours in a week. You don't have to spend any of them showing up for a job anymore. So what are you going to do to fill your time so you're not just horrifically bored? Yeah. Uh, and, you know, everybody says, well, you know, I'm going to relax on vacation. I'm like, okay, great. So you'll do that for three months. Then what? Because you got like 59.8 years left. <laughs> right, exactly. So, like after you take a couple months off and take a breather, like what, what are you thinking about doing with your time? And, and sometimes that gets into hobbies. Sometimes it gets into volunteer work. But sometimes that gets into side hustles, new jobs, new gigs, starting businesses. Okay, if you're going to start a business, how much of your money are you going to allocate to starting your business so that you don't actually blow up your financial independence trying to start your new thing? Uh, so just you know, how are you going to fill all this time you've got for the rest of your life, particularly because most people tend to view what I find as a, I'm retired and not going to work anymore. And so frankly, we, we kind of try to break that down a little bit into, well, no, you don't have to work anymore, but whether you're really not going to work anymore, like, let's talk about that. Cause I'm slightly questioning it. Just having seen a lot of people go through this, yeah. uh, the, the next big blocking tackling issue usually is, um, is talking actually about health insurance and just making sure we've got a plan for how we're handling health insurance. So, this goes all over the map. Uh, you know, uh, the Affordable Care Act to me was a an unbelievable blessing for early retirees yeah, because it gives you a path to guaranteed access to health insurance without being employed. Uh, and and we had a lot of clients that pulled the trigger on early retirement basically as soon as the health insurance exchanges showed up because their only gap that they couldn't effectively solve was was what to do with health insurance. So we we can do health insurance exchanges now. The quality of the policies and even some of the pricing dynamics varies not trivially from one state to the next. So you're just getting a handle on what are we doing for health insurance? Um, you know, sometimes we see people split. One spouse is going to early retire, but the other one actually kind of likes his job. So he's going to keep going. She's going to retire, but he's going to keep going or maybe vice versa. So as long as one of them's working, they're going to get health insurance through their employer. But if both of them is going to stop, are we buying it from an exchange? Um are you going to start a business and then buy your health insurance for yourself through your business, which you can do in some states but not others? So just figuring out, like, what is the health insurance plan? Because to me, that's still one of the areas, like, you don't mess around with with your health insurance. Uh, that that blows up not only early retirements but, like, entire family financial situations and individual financial situations. Medical expenses still one of the leading causes of bankruptcy, uh, unexpected medical expenses. It's one of the leading causes of bankruptcy. So we'll usually spend some time just figuring out what's the, what's the plan for health insurance and how are we making sure that's covered. And and that that's really the the primary focal points. I mean, there there's lots of you know, nuances for particular situations, but uh, for most the kind of the big three I find is uh, just how are we going to generate cash flow from the from your retirement assets. 
what are you actually going to be doing with your time? You know, parentheses, you're actually going to be earning some money because that's that'll change some of the other decisions. Uh, and, and do we have a clear plan for health insurance? It's like if I can buckle those three down, uh, there's still a lot of other details that come after that. But but most of the rest is is not nearly as hard to sort out as as making sure we're good on those big three. Great. And, and yeah, it doesn't, that seems, you know, pretty standard. It doesn't seem like there's any very unique challenges facing early retirees than someone retiring in their fifties or sixties. Yeah. Again, the, uh, uh, you know, figuring out the health insurance, uh, used to be, used to be a much bigger thing. Like retiree and my 57 year old retiree might've been able to get some employer continuation retiree medical sure. plan to get us until age 65 to Medicare. Basically, you know, for, for people in their 50s and 60s who retire, health insurance is a race to to age 65 Medicare. Gotcha. Uh, when we're retiring in our 30s or even 40s, uh, like we just <laughs> we need another plan. Like we're <laughs> yes, at some point in the 2040s, I think Medicare will be available for you unless we change it sometime in the next 30 years. But like we need a plan between now and then. That's not going to include Medicare. Uh, so so just figuring out what that is. Uh, again, the health insurance exchanges made that much easier. Before that, you know, it was lots of of like okay. Uh, can we find some kind of work that still attaches you to decent insurance? Um, can you start a business and buy insurance through it, which we could do in some states? Do you need to move to a different state that has better insurance coverage that you can buy as an uninsured individual? Um, are we going to set a path where we go through COBRA continuation coverage from your former employer and then exhaust that and you can get what's called a guaranteed issue HIPAA policy that they have to give you regardless of pre-existing conditions, but you can only get it if you expire your COBRA coverage first. Like just there was all the this this maze of options that were sometimes messy, sometimes literally required people to move and relocate just to get to a state that had more accessible health insurance. Uh uh, unfortunately, a lot of that got easier with the with the health insurance exchanges. Not not perfect, but way way easier than it was previously. So, if somebody wanted to talk to somebody like you or another advisor, how, how would you recommend them going about it? Obviously, the XY Planning Network sounds fantastic because it's fee only advisors, so you're not worried yep. about getting sold some crazy thing that's just going to earn them a bunch of commission or things like that. So, any sort of advice for somebody out there who is interested in just chatting to somebody about this? Yeah, so you know, uh, certainly XY Planning Network is a, a a great resource. I mean, we 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 created in part to help people through challenges like this. Uh, you know, you can go to xyplanningnetwork.com. There's about 450 advisors on there. Uh, uh, you know, we're again, we're simply a support network for them. It's not like literally our our advisory firm. Uh, we we just try to create a community of advisors that that tackle and solve these kinds of problems. Uh, and, uh, frankly, there's a wide range there. Not all of them work with people that are doing early retirement financial independence, but, uh, but many of them do. And you can kind of search by their specialties and who they work with and, and even where they are. Although a lot of people actually engage our XY Plan network advisors virtually, you know, the, the, uh, uh, internet's an amazing thing. You can hire expertise wherever they are and video chat your way to, uh, uh, to good discussions. And then uh, we we do work for, with some folks in this context as well at uh at our advisory firm. You know, our our pinnacle advisory offering is designed to be a combination of investment management and financial planning, and and we do both for folks. So we're a better fit for those that have accumulated a nest egg and they just want to go do their retirement thing and not have to worry about the money and how it's being managed and how to generate the retirement cash flows because we have a system and process about how we do that and then give them all the other financial planning advice and guidance that they need along the way. Um, but you know, diff- different kind of different solutions for different folks. Uh, Pinnacle's really built to do that combination of we'll watch your retirement dollars so you can enjoy your retirement and give you all the other advice you need along the way. Uh, XY Plan Network advisors are, are more varied. Uh, there are a few of them that will help with the, with the retirement nest egg, but a lot of them are like, hey, you want to manage your own portfolio assets, but you just want some ongoing advice about, uh, things to navigate. Great. We're here for you. Uh, so, you know, how, however you prefer to engage, uh, advisors to each their own. Cool. Okay. I will link to all of that good stuff in the show notes. So if anybody's interested, you can go there. Um, we're already over an hour, which I'm so sad about because I think I got through like maybe 40% of all the stuff I wanted to chat with you about today. But um, this has been fantastic and really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. Um, I usually end all my interviews with just 
you know, what one piece of advice you'd give to somebody who's hoping to retire early or reach financial independence early in life? Uh, so the, the biggest tip I'd give to people that are trying to reach financial independence early in life is, uh, watch out for that thing called lifestyle creep, which is, you know, the, the, the truth is when you look at, at, uh, even, even the research, most of us get our biggest raises through our twenties and thirties. Like that's the biggest stage when our income grows and the trap that a lot of people get into is your income goes up. You feel like you can afford more stuff and you go buy more stuff. And and like, once you do that, you suddenly find that things that you never had in your life, you suddenly can't live without, right? Like once, once, once we add something to our lifestyle, it's really, really unpleasant to subtract it, even though we went for years and years without ever having it in the first place. And once those, and because of that, once those expenses creep in, they're so hard to subtract back out. And it ends out gobbling up a lot of the money that that you could have ended out saving. And and when we look at the people that are most successful in early retirement, you know, every now and then it's just like, hey, I made a company and I sold it for $10 million. Now I don't have to work anymore. I'm like, cool, dude. Kudos to you. <laughs> but you, most people that go through successful early retirement, there's a there's a level of of frugal living that tends to go with it. But for most, I find that do it happily and successfully. It's not because they like, you know, took all the things that they enjoy and cut it out of their life and said like, darn it, I'm going to live like a monk for 10 years if that's what it takes for me to, to get to retirement. It's that they just didn't lift their lifestyle up as their income went up. Mm-hmm. They, you know, they, they spend their thirties living like they were still in their twenties and they live to spend their forties living like they're still in their thirties. And if you do that, you usually find you're done by 50, mm-hmm. uh, sometimes much, much earlier. And so, you know, particularly for those who are listening that are in their twenties or maybe early thirties, where I find this tends to happen the most, just be careful about what, what new things you introduce in your life that quickly become a part of your lifestyle that are hard to go backwards on. Uh, you know, once you buy a new car, you almost never buy used again. Uh, once you upgrade to a bigger house, you almost never downsize to a smaller one. And so if you spend time thinking about and being cognizant of those, those permanent lifestyle additions that you make, even things down to like, boy, I'll tell you, once you hire someone to mow your lawn, you are never going to want to pull out that lawnmower again. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, when you view it that way, like it's not, you know, whatever is your area, it's not 50 bucks to, to, to get my lawn mowed this week. It's if I do this, it's 50 bucks every other week, every summer for the rest of my life, which right. is like a, a $50,000 or whatever adds up to $50,000 decision not to mow my lawn. So that's a, that's a really good exercise actually. Yeah. Frame all of your spending as if you're going to do it for the rest of your life and then add that up and see what that number is. Yeah. Well, and, and particularly for the things that tend to be recurring. So, you know, when we hire housekeepers and landscapers and people to mow the lawn and we buy new cars and we buy new houses, like those are the things that, that become lifestyle expenses that are hard to go back on. And when you get good at those, what you find is sort of the, the one-off stuff suddenly doesn't get nearly so hard anymore. So, uh, you know, I, I, uh, I've spent most of my life living in uh, houses that are, you know, at worst 20% of my income. Most of the time I've lived in housing, that's less than 10% of my income. Mm-hmm. And when you spend less than 10% of your income on housing, like, all that stuff about whether to buy, you know, whether you should save money buying a $5 Starbucks coffee or not. I don't give a crap. I just yeah. go buy the coffee. Yeah. You know what? I feel like buying it. I just stop and buy it. I don't care because by the time you, 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 when you get the big stuff, right. And when you manage the recurring stuff, it's actually amazing how not much the one-off stuff even adds up to at that point, unless you you know, really go all out and splurge. If you're going to buy enough, like $200 bottles of wine, you could probably add this up, but <laughs> Uh, I, like there's so much one-off stuff that just doesn't matter when you make good decisions about the big recurring expenses that do. And so again, it, you know, for the folks that are already there, unfortunately, you've got the, the, the challenging pain of figuring out some things that you may need to cut. But if you're in your twenties and early thirties, where you've still got a lot of raises likely ahead of you, as you continue to grow your career and your income and your, and your earning power, just be cognizant about not introducing things into your life in the first place. Just just be a little more restrained on that end. 
and you'll be amazed at, at how quickly you actually reach that financial independence crossover. Oh, that's yeah, great advice. And I completely agree with what you said about just like the normal one-offs. Um, when I, I hit my fine number and then I ended up working for an extra two years after the fact. And so one of those years I was like, all right, look, I'm getting this whole salary. I'm just going to go crazy because I didn't expect to have this salary. So I'm just going to yeah. finally for once in my life, just relax with money and just go nuts. And it felt like I went nuts, like we were going out to eat a lot, we were having drinks occasionally with friends, and it just felt like we were going crazy. But since all that big stuff was already taken care of yeah. over the years of me being like, you know, really frugal, um, I, we did, uh, my wife and I didn't increase our income or our spending by more than a grand that year. And it felt like we were just going crazy. Yeah. So, um, yeah. I mean, when you're otherwise just kind of accustomed to a, a more moderate lifestyle and you've gotten some of those big things right, it's, it's, again, it, it, it's amazing how not not much a lot of that little stuff adds up. And, and you know, I find so many people inflict so much stress on themselves. I'm like, I got to save a couple dollars a day by uh, by bagging my lunch instead of, you know, buying it in the the in a Chipotle in the area. Mm -hmm. I'm like, or you could just split an apartment with a friend for the next <laughs> couple of years and save hundreds or a thousand dollars a month on rent yeah. and eat whatever the heck you want. <laughs> yeah, no, you know, I, I spent the decade of my twenties splitting an apartment with two buddies. Uh, uh, it gave me enough savings to buy my house, pay for my marriage, and start my business. Right. Uh, you know, just just because I kept my housing dirt cheap, and you know, now that I live in a standalone house and I'm raising a family, there's no way I could go back to an apartment and split it with two buddies at this point. <laughs> uh, but, but that's the whole point. Like as long as I was doing that, it was fine. It was my lifestyle. I liked right. hanging out with them. It was all good. Once you move away from that to something else, it's so hard to go backwards, but, uh, or to feel like you're going backwards. But if you just don't introduce it in the first place, uh, it, it's amazing how quickly, uh, the, the savings start accumulating. Yep, absolutely. Well, Michael, thank you so much. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, obviously, kitsis.com, which I'm going to spell because yep. it's... <laughs> yes, uh, K-I-T-C-E-S.com, uh, kitsis.com. And, and, and so uh, that's yeah, the best can, place you, to reach you? Yeah, yeah. You can reach me through the site or you know, uh, Twitter at Michael Kitsis always works as well. Yes, you're a very prolific Twitter, which is... yeah. Uh, I love me some Twitter. But yeah, uh, Twitter, Twitter or just uh, through kitsis.com is the best way to reach me. Awesome, Michael. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate it again. And uh, yeah, I look forward to seeing you in Dallas in October. Abs absolutely. Good to good to see you at FinCon. I'm looking forward to it. Awesome, man. All right. Well, thanks again. Take care. Absolutely. Thank you. You too. Bye. Bye.